You're listening to the home of cool, irreverent, and entertaining talk right here on L.A. Talk Radio. You're listening to Answers for the Family with Alan Cardoza and Dr. Melody Fox right here on L.A. Talk Radio. Welcome to another edition of Answers for the Family. I'm your host, Alan Cardoza, and with me is co-host extraordinaire, psychologist Dr. Melody Fox. It's great being back with you. We seem to be on opposite (laughs) weeks sometimes. Exactly. Well, you know, each week, each of us bring you guests that can inspire, educate, and entertain while bringing options to raising the quality of life for the whole family. And we will address issues such as locating your runaway teen, family crisis intervention, building self-esteem, dealing with addictions, and so much more. With each of us having over 30 years' experience working with families in crisis, we have been fortunate to meet and work with some of the top professionals in this field who are working to make this world a better place for all of us. And we will bring you some of these incredibly talented and caring people each week as we bring you Answers for the Family. Now, our topic today it's, it's going to be a little different. This one is how the brain and the immune system work together in healthy adults and in mental disorders. And to talk with us about this is today's guest, Paul Patterson, who has written a very interesting book entitled Infectious Behavior, Brain-Immune Connections in Autism, Schizophrenia, and Depression. Now, some of the topics covered include some fascinating and some disturbing history of treating mental illness by modulating the immune system and the role of the immune system in mental illness and the risk factors for mental illness that involve infection during pregnancy and the current research in this area that provides hope for the future in treating these illnesses. Now, to tell you a little bit about Paul, Paul is a professor of biology at the California Institute of Technology, known as Caltech, and prior to that, he was on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. Paul is a developmental neurobiologist who specializes in the interactions between the nervous and immune systems. Paul, welcome to Answers for the Family. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, we're, we're excited. It's, it's an interesting book, and it's very fascinating because I, I so believe in the body and the mind and how it works together. And you're talking about the immune system and how that could affect all these different diseases and things that really affect people's lives, such as autism or schizophrenia, and especially depression. I mean, that's pretty prevalent right now. Yes. Yeah, I think the uh, the most obvious uh, example of immune brain interaction that everybody is familiar with is uh, what's called sickness behavior. So when you get an infection, uh, like the flu or or a cold, the uh, immune system sends signal to the brain uh, to change behavior. So you get sleepy, you go to bed, you you don't eat, you don't interact uh, socially, and so on. And this is all regulated by molecules, proteins that are produced by the immune system that uh, signal the brain to change behavior. Mm-hmm. So we're all familiar with that kind of thing, even though we don't think about it as uh, immune brain interaction necessarily. Mm-hmm. And some of those symptoms are, of course, shared with major depression. Right. You know, change in sleep patterns, change in eating patterns, lack of social interaction, so on. Mm-hmm. Now, Paul, but before we go into like discussing your book, I think I'd like the audience to, and I would myself as well, learn a little bit more about you and what your laboratory is currently working on. Now, I'm told you're working on three specific uh, projects. Can you share a little bit about those with us? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, one is um, a mouse model of multiple sclerosis where we're uh, activating the brains. This is in mice, uh, activating the brain's uh, neural stem cells. That is, the adult brain in mice and man has uh, stem cells in the brain itself that can replace nerve cells and uh, glial cells, support cells. So we're activating those cells in this mouse model and we get <clears throat> good remyelination. Mm -hmm. The second uh, project that we're working on is Huntington's disease, which is a terrible uh, neurodegenerative disorder, genetic disorder. We work on that in a mouse model also, mm -hmm. and uh, developing a treatment that involves antibodies. And the third area that we work in is the one that's relevant to this book, which is a mouse model of uh, mental illness, schizophrenia and autism. And you talk about mouse, uh, mouse models. For those that don't understand what you're doing with mouse, mice, <laughs> since mouses wouldn't be appropriate, mice, what, can you explain that to the general population? Yeah, in the case of Huntington's disease, it's a genetic disease, so uh, it's possible to take the mutation that causes the disease in humans and simply put that mutation into mice, mm -hmm. and it causes behavioral abnormalities and pathology in the brain that looks like Huntington's disease. Hmm. In the case of multiple sclerosis, you can treat the mice um, <clears throat> in two ways. You can either give them a, uh, a toxin that causes uh, what we call demyelination, that is removal of the insulation from nerves, mm -hmm. and that uh, causes uh, pathology that resembles human multiple sclerosis, or you can activate the immune system in mice in such a way as to cause demyelination in that way, mm -hmm. and that's another kind of model of multiple sclerosis. Well, I know in your book you talk about the mouse models and the feature of like major depressive disorder and how you're using mm -hmm. the mice in those tests. How, how is that playing out, and how quickly between working with the mice and using whatever you learn in that with human beings does it take? Well, in the, in the, in the case of mice, uh, we do both um, behavioral analysis and uh, neuropathology in the brain. Mm -hmm. So in the case of behavior, uh, one might be surprised to think that there are behaviors that are shared between humans and, and mice that are relevant to these major mental disorders, but in fact there are such behaviors. So in the case of autism, for instance, uh, the three cardinal symptoms are lack of communication, lack of social interaction, and an increase in repetitive or stereotype behaviors. And you can assay all of those in mice. Mm -hmm. So the mice can exhibit repetitive behaviors like uh, increases in self-grooming. You can look at social interaction, changes in social interaction by putting the mouse, uh, giving the mouse a choice between interacting socially or going off in its own corner. Mm -hmm. Or you can look at communication in mice uh, by something that's called ultrasonic vocalizations. That is, mice uh, not only squeak uh, when they're um, afraid, or mishandled, but normally they communicate in an ultrasonic frequency that we can't hear, humans can't hear. So you need a special microphone to hear 
what they're talking about, as it were. Well, I, that, that just kind of find that interesting because I keep thinking, like in the case for well, autism, you could check the behavioral things, like you're doing the behavioral analysis, et cetera. But right. how, how can you tell if a mouse is schizophrenic? Or is well, it the, the, the mouse these, noises are different? Yeah, some of these uh, symptoms are actually shared with autism, like a lack of social interaction. And <clears throat> there's also changes in what we call cognition or, or memory and learning. But another uh, very characteristic feature of schizophrenia is one that we're investigating in mice, which is hallucinations. Hmm. So we're looking to see if the mice exhibit signs of hallucination by looking at the patterns of brain activity in the mice under various circumstances, including giving them a hallucinogen like uh, LSD. So it's possible to visualize these things in, in the mouse brain. I just find it fascinating because right now I'm doing some work at a community clinic that works with schizophrenias or people mm -hmm. schizophrenic, who are schizophrenic. And I just would find this really fascinating if we could find some cures or some changes in that so we could help the general population because there's so many people out there more than I think more pe most people know. Right. That's one of the reasons I, I wrote this book was to uh, you know, inform the republic, the the public, with uh, information about what's going on in research with animals <clears throat> and in humans, mm -hmm. and what can be done in terms of um, prevention and uh, the the various therapies that people are working on. Yeah, and you talk about you know the book is about immunity and stuff. So I'm just curious, how does the immune involvement pertain to mental illness, how is that all connected? I know you touched a little bit on that earlier, but could you explain a little bit more? Yeah, the, uh, in both, um, in, in all of three of the disorders, uh, schizophrenia, autism, and depression, there are pretty dramatic changes in the immune system that can be measured by taking people's, uh, you know, the blood cells out and looking at them, and by measuring um, proteins that are produced by the immune system, small proteins called cytokines. Those are abnormal in all three disorders. And uh, one, that, one of the uh, other aspects of immune brain and communication that we work on is uh, the risk factor of maternal infection. That is, when pregnant women get an infection during a particular time during gestation, that increases the risk for autism or schizophrenia in the offspring uh, considerably, like three to seven fold, for instance, for schizophrenia. That's a lot. So that's a very significant increase, yeah. Uh, of course, it doesn't mean that every woman who gets an infection has a child with schizophrenia or autism because there are other factors involved, like genetics, for instance, um, of the mother and of the fetus. But it's a big, incre big increase in risk, three to seven fold. So it's definitely something that uh, the public should be aware of. And in the case of schizophrenia, it turns out that many different kinds of infections uh, increase the risk. So that means uh, a viral infection like the flu or a bacterial infection like uh, urinary tract or uh, even a uh, parasitic infection 
like one called uh, toxoplasma that we get from cats. Oh, yeah, I've heard about that in pregnant mm -hmm. women. They have to be very careful, I guess, about cleaning out the urine. Exactly. The, the, the cat litter box, yeah, they shouldn't be they shouldn't be taking care of the cat litter box while pregnant, yeah. Now, I mean, Paul, you know, I, I think what you're saying, a lot of it is, is that, I mean, obviously when a woman is pregnant, it's very, very important that they take really good care of themselves and try not to to introduce anything into their body that could uh, cause an infection. But now let's say that now after the children are born, for a lot of the parents out there, I mean, what are some of the signs that the average person out there uh, that they may be seeing that would suggest that maybe they need to bring their child in to get checked for some of these things? Well, for autism, uh, this would be uh, the, the signs that, that people most often talk about are a lack of eye contact, uh, some repetitive stereotype behaviors, uh, or in severe cases, things like uh, head banging, um, lack of development of language. Um, so in autism, as you know, it's a spectrum. So it goes from mild to severe, and uh, it can be very dramatic in the severe cases or it can be very mild in the other cases. Yeah. And it's very important to, if one is, has suspicions about this, in, in the child is to get to a pediatrician and ask them uh, about it, about the symptoms early, because early treatment makes a difference in autism compared to coming in later when when the brain is already developing. Mm -hmm. Now, what are some of the signs then in schizophrenia or depression? I would think that would be much more difficult to be able to identify. Right. So those are things that typically occur later, much later in uh, age. So schizophrenia is typically a disorder of young adults, people who've just passed adolescence. Um, although it's a developmental disorder also, that is, uh, retrospective studies have found that um, adults who develop uh, schizophrenia were different on average, statistically speaking, uh, as young children, very young children, mm -hmm. in terms of their social interaction and, and uh, their performance in school and things like that. But that's only a statistical. Uh, that would not, could not possibly be used for diagnosis at this point. Mm -hmm. So that's something that occurs. The, the psychotic symptoms only occur much, much later. And that's, in, in depression, it's highly variable, you know. So people who most typically are, are young adults who first show signs of depression, but this can also be seen in, in adolescence, of course. Mm -hmm. And depression is, you know, everybody gets depressed at one time or another, but what we're talking about here is major depressive disorder, which is quite different, where it's a very disabling, continuous disorder. Hmm. Well, you had mentioned earlier that a lot of this happens during the infection during certain key times during the pregnancy, have you been able to figure out, like if it's early in the pregnancy, the first eight weeks, eight to 12 weeks, or the first, you know, the trimester or second trimester? Yeah, there's, there's epidemiological studies uh, that have been done in both autism and schizophrenia. So in the case of autism, there's a, they 
a very large study uh, done in Denmark, you know, where they have a uh, public health system that keeps track of everybody uh, very closely with very good records. And they found that in a study of over 10,000 autism cases, that a viral infection during first trimester is the one that increases risk. Mm-hmm. And by viral infection, that means something serious like a very, very bad case of the flu, for instance. Mm-hmm. In schizophrenia, a lot of epidemiology also, which points to uh, the end of the first trimester and the beginning of the second trimester uh, as being a critical window for vulnerability. And as I mentioned, those can be any kind of infection that have, that has been implicated there, virus, bacteria, parasites, and several different kinds of viruses have been implicated, like the flu, also um, reproductive virus like herpes virus uh, is also uh, implicated. Wow. That, I mean, that that's almost pretty scary. If I were a pregnant woman right now, I'd be going, oh my gosh, don't get around me if you have a cold or flu or anything else. I- Got to stay safe. Exactly, exactly. Safe. That, that's one of the things I, I point out in the book is well, people just aren't aware of these risks. And once you're aware of them, there are actually things you can do, right? You can, everybody has common sense uh, <laughs> preventative measures that they know about, but they don't, they don't practice. For instance, constantly washing one's hands or using these anti- uh, uh, bacterial type uh, wipes mm-hmm. after you know going shopping or or uh, going to the gas station and such things like that. Mm-hmm. These are things that we know about, but we don't do them. Uh, washing hands frequently is is something we just don't do typically. Now, Generally, uh, wearing a mask, for instance, if you're on a if you have to fly during early pregnancy on an airplane, it's, it would be wise, I think, to wear a mask because we all know that uh, you can very often get a bad cold or worse after flying in an airplane within that confined space. Mm-hmm. And we talked about not changing cat litter. Uh, another risk for toxoplasma is eating raw meat. Oh, wow. So a study was done in Britain a few years ago showing that <clears throat> over two-thirds of the meat samples in butcher shops there contained... Uh, eggs for toxoplasma. Hmm. So, so I mean, I often hear that pregnant women shouldn't eat tuna and they shouldn't eat raw fish. So you're talking about raw beef and yeah, yeah. Okay. For the in the case of toxoplasma, yeah. Mm-hmm. In the case of raw fish, um, it's a different kind of parasite, but it's probably a similar uh, outcome, although it hasn't been studied. Hmm. Now, what is your take on the controversy that? people talk about regarding vaccination autism because you're, you're talking about preventative measures. It would be important to get vaccines before you get pregnant or can you do it when you're pregnant right. or how does that all right. work or what's your opinion on that? Yeah, you know, I think that's a very um, next issue. Uh, the CDC in the, in the States here is very, very strongly adamant about vaccinating pregnant women for the flu. That is after they're pregnant, and it happens to be flu flu season, you should get pregnant. You should get uh, vaccinated. Uh, certainly, you should get vaccinated before you're pregnant if that's the time. If the timing is right, um, but 
I think my own opinion is that the situation is not all that cut and dried in terms of vaccination during pregnancy because there's a study done by the Canadian uh, CDC by their flu experts and they came to the conclusion that we it isn't clear that vaccination is totally safe and um, even efficacious mm-hmm. during the beginning of pregnancy during the first trimester. Mm-hmm. So I don't think the situation is totally clear. Now, everybody knows that it's, it's bad to get, uh, to get severely sick during pregnancy. So with the flu, for instance, so you would think vaccination would be the way to go even while you're pregnant. But my concern is that what vaccination does is activate the immune system. And that's, that's the risk factor that we're talking about here. Uh, of course, everybody responds differently to vaccination. Uh, you know, some people, it's, it's nothing. You know, you get vaccinated, you go back to work. Mm-hmm. Other people have to sometimes go to bed or maybe even uh, rest up for a day or two after vaccination. So everybody's different in their response to vaccination. So uh, I don't know. I don't have an answer. My, my, my advice always is to take preventative measures. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And just work on that area. You know, yeah, we have a couple listener questions and one of them, is talking a little bit about autism and this person writes my son a 10 year old was diagnosed with autism syndrome five years ago he is not an extreme case thankfully but he does have communication and physical problems and my husband and i are passionate about finding anything that will help integrate and grow up into a functional healthy adult and do you feel we have any treatment in the future that will have a positive impact on our children so i'm just curious also to add to their question is the studies in, that you're doing now are you finding ways that might be able to help treatment. I know you're working on preventative, but treatment in the future for children that have autism. Yeah, I think um, it's there, there's good evidence that um, you know behavioral therapy, when started early, can be pretty effective, although not in every case. But what we and other people are working on is um, a more biological type of, of treatment and uh, we're, we're working on modifying the immune system, modifying the immune response mm-hmm. in mice, in the mouse model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we recently published a paper a few weeks ago uh, showing that um, in the mouse model that's exhibiting symptoms, behavioral symptoms of autism, mm-hmm. we can do a bone marrow transplant in those mice and uh, correct many of the behavioral symptoms. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a dramatic way of modifying the immune system, of course, and isn't, isn't recommended or isn't even practical for treating autistic kids, but it shows you that modifying the immune system makes a huge difference in, uh, in the behavioral symptoms in the mouse model. Hmm. And there are other ways we're working on of modifying the immune system also. So that just happens to be my area of interest and expertise, but um, other people are working on other kinds of uh, treatments. And I think uh, there's a lot of hope here 
although it hasn't, you know, there are clinical trials actually going on for some genetic disorders in which the kids exhibit uh, symptoms of autism. Although it's not classic autism, it's a genetic disorder like Rett syndrome in girls, fragile X, uh, there's one called tuberous sclerosis, there's another one called neurofibromatosis. These are these are pretty rare genetic disorders which have uh, severe symptoms, but they include behavioral symptoms that resemble things seen in autism. And in several of those cases, the mouse models uh, have come up with treatments that work in the mouse and are now being tested in um, clinical trials in human mm-hmm. humans. So we don't know the, the results of those small clinical trials yet, but if they're positive, they'll be uh, expanded into larger trials, and those could be relevant, could turn out to be relevant for classical autism. Yeah, and there's so much to look forward to in the future because science is always moving forward. And actually, we're going to have to move forward here for just a second, Paul. We've got to go to a commercial <laughs> sure. real quick. But today, today our guest on Answers for the Family is Paul Patterson, who works over at Caltech and does all these wonderful studies and has written this book called Infectious Behavior, Brain Immune Connections in Autism, Schizophrenia, and Depression. And we'll talk more with him in just a moment. Stand by. Founded over 25 years ago, To meet the needs of families in crisis, West Shield specializes in resolving adolescent issues that negatively impact the family. From preteen to young adult, we are experienced and qualified to help. We offer solutions which include referrals to a network of top professionals internationally that we work very closely with in the fields of educational consulting, psychology, and psychiatry. Our in-home crisis intervention care program helps to stabilize families and bring effective resolution. We are supported by our licensed investigation company that enables us to offer legal and expert services for locating runaway teens and more. Our therapeutic transportation services help to ensure that adolescents in crisis are safely provided transportation to specialized schools and programs with unmatched experience and success. Simply put, West Shield Adolescent Services is the best solution when your family is facing personal crisis. Call 1-800-899-8585 and let us help you. And we're back with more Answers for the Family. Welcome back. We are talking today with our guest, who is Paul Patterson. He is... uh, he does all. He's a professor of biology at Caltech here in Pasadena, right here in California, the California Institute of Technology. He does some a lot of studies, and his area of expertise is infectious behavior and studying the brain-immune connections right now in autism, schizophrenia, and depression. And that's also the title of his new book with lots of fascinating information on that connection. So welcome back, Paul. Hi. Yeah. Glad to be here. Yeah. And, and Paul, we've got a uh, an instant message that has come across. Uh, and again, we want to thank everybody for those that either send in email messages, uh, you can call in, or the instant message is uh, always well appreciated. And this one reads: Does the and it says quote infectious behavior connection with the immune system have any effect in some of the simplest things in our life, such as yawning and laughing? <laughs> Yeah, that's an interesting question. I never uh, actually thought about that. Um, there's a lot of studies on uh, the immune connection in in the opposite, that is in depression rather than humor. 
But there are a few studies uh, where uh, young adults were shown either a comedy, a movie that's, that's humorous, or a movie that was um, kind of depressing or serious. And then they took uh, blood samples from those people and analyzed the immune cells. And they found, indeed, that uh, watching a humorous movie had a positive effect, and whereas watching a, a depressing movie had a negative effect on immune function. Hmm. And that uh, that's a kind of interesting result because um, it's very clear that people who are depressed have... Uh, a lower immune function and are more likely to get sick, for instance. And so it goes along with that. Uh, another another way of looking at that is stress. So people who are undergoing stress have a lower immune function. That's very clear. Uh, that's also been studied in, in uh, for instance, students who are in during exam period. Uh, they have a lower immune function. They're more likely to get sick. And mm-hmm. samples of their blood cells show the very clearly show a quantitative difference in the immune. Mm-hmm. Yawning, <clears throat> I don't know much about that at all, I'm afraid. Well, I don't know the connection, but I know that I have to try to staffle yawns all the time, all day. So. <laughs> yeah. It's always fascinating to, you know, that when someone yawns, then you start to yawn, yes. you know, and I've always wondered about that. What the, how in the heck does that work? Yeah, I've had clients come in and start yawning, and then I do it, and it's like, and we're going back and forth, and it's nothing personal. Right. Right. <laughs> it's, just, it's just kind of catchy. But I, yeah. I'm just curious when you're talking about that and the immune system, um, I'm just wondering if maybe that's why comedies and things that make you laugh those kind of movies were so big like during the depression area and post-war to, to get people happy in their immune system and I'm just wondering would that be a benefit for pregnant women or women who just got pregnant to watch a lot of comedy and laugh a lot build up their immune system and would that have any effect on on helping them fight off any possible flus or viruses etc that might cause or contribute towards autism or schizophrenia you know that's 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 a, a logical. I think that's a very logical idea, but I don't think it's been been tested. But we do know that um, the immune system during pregnancy is somewhat depressed, so uh, it's not as highly functional as it is uh, before and after pregnancy. And and it's thought that the reason for this is that you don't want a a very overactive immune system that might reject the fetus. Because of course, the fetus is a foreign um, object that contains half of its genes from the father. So you don't want to uh, miscarry because of an overactive immune system. So another example of that is women who have multiple sclerosis, which is an autoimmune disorder. Their symptoms ameliorate or quiet down during the pregnancy, and then once they have the baby, the symptoms come roaring back. So it's another example of how the immune system is suppressed during during pregnancy. Hmm. So yeah, uh, watching a bunch of comedies, maybe that'll do something, I don't know. 
Well, well, I don't it, know. They say laughter is the best medicine, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. If it's the best therapy, maybe we need to be setting up a new course uh, for pregnant women. You know, comedy as therapy. Yeah. 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 Well, that'll be your next study, right? Therapy yep. and laughter in mice. That's the problem. <laughs> Studying laughter in mice. Uh, doesn't sound easy. <laughs> Much easier to study depression in mice. Well, I don't think studying anything in mice would be very easy, but it would be fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, so I know we have another listener question that came in. Um, a pediatric physician during my 15, oh, as a pediatric physician, during my 15 years of practice, I have observed an extraordinary rise in autism and ADD and ADHD, and it's not just alarming. It is what I would term epidemic in scope. I'm not a proponent of drugs for these children, but we're at loss of what to do about these conditions without some aids. Now, several in our medical group are now addressing diet, supplements, and other options, and I'm most excited about your book and will be reading it immediately. Well, that's great. Um, my heart goes out to the families, and I'm dedicated to staying on top of the most current research. And, you know, if you are interested in the most latest, you know, the latest research, it's definitely... Paul's book, Paul Patterson's book, Infectious Behavior, and what we're talking about today, the brain-immune connections of autism, schizophrenia, and depression. And Paul, you also have a blog, a website and a blog where people could go to add their comments and read your comments regarding the book. Yeah, I, I, uh, I post um, summaries of recent uh, interesting science that uh, it's meant for the public <clears throat> it's all in lay language to to try to keep up with what's going on because there's always a lot of very interesting uh, stuff that's being published in this area. Mm-hmm. So I I post it about roughly once a week or so, and people can comment if they like. But you know, getting to the question that uh, the listener raised about the quote unquote epidemic of autism, for instance. Um, it, my thought is that there there is a huge increase in real autism, but there's also an increase in diagnosis based on other factors like social factors, like uh, you have to get a diagnosis of autism in order to get special uh, care at school, you know, to get a um, to get a person to help your child at school. Mm-hmm. So that's a driving force to increase the diagnosis of autism. And, uh, of course, pediatricians are much more aware of it than they used to be, so that would also tend to increase the uh, frequency of diagnosis. But I do think there's a real increase, and people often ask, well, why is that? What's happening? And it's it's not because there's some increase in infection, is there? And I don't really think there is, but... My favorite hypothesis is uh, the hygiene hypothesis, which is that in the last decade or two in developed countries like the U.S., we're much cleaner than we used to be, and we're progressively getting cleaner and cleaner as time goes on. That is, children are raised in cleaner and cleaner environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, it's been shown very clearly in mice that that the immune system does not get educated properly if the mice are totally clean, if they're germ-free, for instance. It has a huge effect on the immune system. And the immune system is much less adequate uh, when mice are raised in germ-free conditions. And 
epidemiology and human studies indicates something similar. Mm -hmm. That is, kids raised in a rural environment, which are exposed to lots of, you know, allergens and pathogens, are much less likely to get autoimmune disease and allergies. And uh, I'm sure you know that there's a huge increase in allergies and asthma and things like that in in California and across the country in, in the last 10, 15 years. And that parallels the increase in autism. So I think my, my you know, hypothesis is that these things are linked, that the immune system is, is uh, altered by being, by, you know, kids not eating dirt anymore. <laughs> so their immune system is different than, it used, than the kids used to be. Yeah, so they don't eat the mud pies, right? Right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I would think, I mean, I've been around families, especially like foster care families and other families, and some families are so, everything's clean, everything's <clears throat> micromanaged to, there's like point <clears throat> 0.01% of dirt in the house and anywhere else, and they're not exposed, they're not allowed to go run and play and get dirty. Then other, And they're sick all the time, actually. And they don't even look as healthy. And then you've got the kids that are out running around, climbing trees, getting filthy. And, you know, the parents there think, well, I'll just give them another bath. It's not a big deal. Well, you know, dirt washes off. So I'm just mm -hmm. curious, you know, if that really does play out in kids getting, you know, sicker or have more allergies or if they're not exposed to that. Because it makes sense because the immune system, we, we're exposed to things when we're little and or even like chicken pox or something and we get it and then we're immune to it for a very long time well, exactly and it's it's just like with us getting our um it, when we get some form of of an immunization mm -hmm. uh it can be i mean if, if for instance for me if i'm going to a foreign country okay i'm getting an immunization but they're giving me a little bit of whatever that is that they think i'm going to get over there so that I can build up an immune, you know, uh, response to it. So I think what you're saying is the same thing. And I think Paul, uh, you know, feel free yeah, to chime in. To, to chime in. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, is that you know, our, what we're talking about, I guess, is is the fact that you know, if we keep them completely away from every possible germ, the immune system isn't going to really do its job to start preparing for those things that we might get. Right, and we 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 call that that the immune system is not getting educated as to what it will face in uh, later childhood and adulthood. Mm -hmm. And another uh, aspect of that is that uh, autoimmune disease uh, is much more frequent in autism uh, cases and in the, in the mother hmm. who, gives, who, who gives birth to autistic kids. And that's another example of how I believe that the immune system has gone awry and uh, it's possibly linked to this hygiene hypothesis. I, I think it's a reasonable uh, hypothesis, and um, I can't I can't think of too many other ideas other than the usual that uh, well well we have lots of toxins in our environment and you know um, in the air and so on and so maybe that's increasing and that can't be ruled out really for a, a cause of increase in autism, but. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of linking the increase in asthma and allergies to the increase in autism. All right. So parents, head on out there, grab your kids, and go play in the mud for a yeah, while. Right. Right. 
Now, uh, in your book, I, okay, I, I, I have to admit, I do like pictures because I'm very visual. And inside your book, when you're talking about animal models of autism, schizophrenia, and depression, I think it's chapter six, if I remember correctly, um, you have a bunch of pictures of mice. Mm-hmm. And you have all right. these feelings underneath this mice from, I think, anger, fear, joy, surprise, um, I think depression, desire, rapture, rapture, and meditation. Yeah. And it said, underneath, I think it says, oh, let me see if I can find it here, uh, the ease of which one can infer what a mouse is thinking is apparent from these pictures. I'm looking, I'm going, they're exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I always show that, that same picture when I give a lecture and... I had a student come up to me a while back after my talk, and he said, uh, Dr. Patterson, I don't, I didn't see any difference between those mice. And I always make a joke that you have to be an expert to be able to tell the difference between the mouse, the mice under these various conditions. But it's it's really a, a, jo- a visual joke mm-hmm. uh, that usually gets a good laugh. Well, I keep thinking how I could use it in my practice because a lot of people make assumptions on how people, other people feel by looking at them. And I, I keep thinking, well, this would be a good one to show clients and go, what do you think that mouse is feeling? Right. <laughs> and just right. show the different pictures and, uh, you know, have all these different feelings coming up for it. But Right. You know. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate for us that they don't have, uh, that mice don't have facial expressions in the way that primates do so we have to look at other kinds of behavior mm-hmm. yeah I, I i'm just wondering if anybody who has a mouse as a pet would would argue that point mm. maybe maybe i've looked at a lot of mice though <laughs> <I'm sure you laughs> over the years yeah. uh, but i do want to say the the website for the book's blog again it's um infectiousbehavior.wordpress.com and it's the most interesting place to go and check out the blog and what uh, Paul Patterson has written about his studies and and you can put your two cents in too, isn't that right? Sure. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah people people do put their comments up, uh, post the comments, yeah, mm-hmm. or ask questions. Yeah. Well, I'm just wondering, is there any anything else in here that you'd like for us to be aware of or? Because you, you go through a lot. You talk about the twin studies and and uh, you know and how twins come out and how they affect each other and their immune system as well. Yeah, and uh, another interesting I thought uh, finding that I came across in writing was the uh, the um, the sort of dark legacy of the flu epidemic of 1918. I think it's a fascinating story. A Spanish flu, you know, killed millions and millions of people worldwide. Mm-hmm. And that that uh, strain of virus, or modified versions of that strain of virus, uh, have keep coming back every 10 years or so uh, through the last uh, 100 years. And the legacy of that 1918 flu is still with us, both in the presence of these strains that are around and also in the people who were uh, fetuses at the time that the epidemic spread through their particular city or their particular part of the country. Mm -hmm. So it's been found that in follow-up studies that those people who were gestating at that, just at that particular time, have 
uh, a lower level of academic achievement. They are more likely to 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 be on uh, to be out of work. They're more likely to uh, to be on disability. So their their whole quality of life, statistically speaking, is very different from the people that were born after the flu came through or people who were born before the 1918 flu came through. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the legacy has lasted a, a really long time, and it's, it's part of a larger picture of something called the fetal origins of adult disease. Mm-hmm. So uh, mental illness is just one aspect of problems that that come later in adulthood from uh, from issues during pregnancy, and uh, it's really important that women be aware of these things. Mm-hmm. And and prenatal care, you know, women who are not getting appropriate prenatal care uh, are their fetus is being put at uh, risk for a whole variety of uh, problems later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's there, there's just so much going on, and you have to be so careful when you're pregnant and what you're exposed to and what you're not and how you prepare prior to if you actually plan your pregnancy. A lot of times you don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> it kind of happens. Yeah. Right, and, and and I think in going back to the one of the listener questions where it talked a little bit about you know the fact that, that this particular medical group is now addressing diet and supplements, on a much greater level when they're dealing with their patients. Um, I mean, how important do you think that is in as far as a form of prenatal care? Well, we know that from the example of folate, that uh, folate supplementation has made a huge difference in the health of uh, the offspring. That's, that's a really good case example. Um, we're working currently in, in our mice, we're working on um, the possibility that uh, probiotics might be interesting because, you know, in, in both autism and schizophrenia, there is a, a pretty frequent um, GI problems, intestinal problems. And we see the same thing in our mouse model that mice born to infected mothers have GI problems. And uh, it's pretty astounding. They have these, they're early and they're permanent through adulthood. Wow. And we're trying to treat them with uh, with probiotics, you know, uh, bacteria that are um, beneficial. And uh, we're getting some success, we think. So that's another area that uh, is, I think, really worth investigating. Well, I think that's, Interesting because they're really pushing. You see probiotics everywhere. Probiotics. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they're all over the, dro- the, the uh, grocery store. Yeah, so I'm just wondering if that's something you could take after birth, you know, as you're feeding your child these yogurts and things and be more high in those probiotics and if that would be helpful. Yeah, that's what we're investigating with the mice. Oh, cool. Exactly. So as you're investigating that, that is, are you going to be including that into your blog? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I have a a number of um, things on the blog already about that. Yeah, because I find that really fascinating. So, oh, go ahead. 
I was just curious, Alan's going, he has a question, and so do I. I'm just curious, how long have you been working in this? What what got you so interested in working in this area? Yeah, yeah, I got interested in this first because uh, for many, many years, still going back to Harvard days, I give course lectures, I give courses on uh, mental illness, and mm-hmm. I was always dissatisfied with the animal models that were available at the time, so I decided that we could try to make try to do something positive in that area, and that's how we got into it. Mm-hmm. But subsequently, I got really interested in um, autism, both because my wife is a special ed teacher and also because I have a nephew who had autism. And so I've been really interested in that, and I'm now on the scientific advisory board of Autism Speaks, which is a really big mm-hmm. Uh, foundation for autism, mm-hmm. a very good foundation, I think. So I got really involved with that, and that's why we spent a lot of time in, in that area and with the mice, with the mouse model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, now, Paul, we've only got about a minute, but I noticed, I mean, in the final chapter of your book, you've entitled it Reasons for Hope. Um, I mean, what are some of the reasons for hope or reasons for optimism? Well, I think it comes from... Uh, for instance, the genetic models of, of diseases like Rett syndrome and Fragile X where you have autistic symptoms that can be duplicated in the mice and people have found at UCLA, for instance, at MIT, people have found ways of treating these mouse models that are very effective mm-hmm. and now those are in clinical trials with human kids. Hmm. So anytime it moves from the mice to clinical trials is a, is a huge uh, reason for optimism, even though a lot of clinical trials fail, at least we're trying things, uh, and I think that's really, really important. Mm-hmm. And the, in in those cases, they not only could um, prevent symptoms, but they could reverse symptoms that were already there. They could reverse them by these treatments. Wow. So that's really, really surprising and interesting, isn't it? I mean, you would have expected that the mouth, that the brain would be all miswired and hard to, hard to rectify the situation, but in fact, they could reverse the symptoms. And we found that in our studies with the bone marrow transplants, we could reverse some of the behavioral symptoms wow. in adults, in adult mice. That's well, amazing. And, and Paul, yes, that is amazing. And I want to thank you for being out there doing that. I mean, it's it's important that somebody is out there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, trying to find out this information. And I think it's great not only that you can find it, but the fact that you can reverse it, mm-hmm. uh, I think is wonderful, or that obviously we can. So, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Again, the book is Infectious Behavior, Brain-Immune Connections in Autism, Schizophrenia, and Depression. Um, And if you want to get more information on that, if you're out there driving and you weren't able to write down the blog information, you can go to our website, answers, the numeral four, thefamilyblog.com. We will have all of Paul's information on there. Mm -hmm. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thank you, Melody and Alan. I think you're, you're doing a great public service with these shows. Well, we Thanks think you're again. doing a great service doing the research to help us. Absolutely, our- absolutely. We're just we're just the delivery uh, <laughs> of the information that people like you are gaining for us. So again, thank you, and to all of our listeners, thank you for being out there and listening. And uh, we will hope you will be out there with us next week. Have a great week. Bye now. You're listening to the home of cool, irreverent, and entertaining talk. 
right here on L.A. Talk Radio.